Well, here we go. Here we go in a, uh, ser- <laughs> in a series that uh, is probably in your heart and in your mind. It, it can mean a couple of different, a couple of different things, it, particularly when it comes to the election. For some of you, uh, this election is speeding down the track so quickly, and it's almost upon us. For some of you, you are like, "Will this election ever get over?" Right? I mean, just be done with it. But hey, I, I've been looking forward to this uh, in sharing about uh, something from the Word of God that will help us live out the gospel in this area of culture, in this area of politics. The election, of course, is coming up a week from Tuesday, so look forward to addressing that next Sunday from uh, from Jesus's perspective. So next week, Jesus is going to tell us whether to vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Just kidding. He's not going to do that. I promise. If, if he says that in scripture, you come to me ahead of time so I know walking in here, right? Um, Turn to Romans chapter 12. What we're going to do is simply this this morning is lay some groundwork when it comes to this intersection of culture and politics and and the church. And I just want to share with you um, a perspective from the word of God because we always want to be rooted and anchored in the scripture. And I think we are this morning as we look at how Paul comes to the church in Rome and he says some things to them. And I think he says some things to us as well. But um, uh, what, what I want to do is just take us through a lens because you, you all have lenses by which you see culture and by which you see politics and which you see the election and who to vote for and um, the issues of the day and all of the things that you saw on the bumper there. All of us come with a certain lens by which we view these things. But my heart is this, that by the end of our series, that we will, from Scripture being rooted there, we will have a gospel lens for all of these things. That we will have a sense of the authority of scripture, the heart of the gospel, having been redeemed by God's grace, the forgiveness of our sins being transformed. So with that, how then are we to live? And how are we to respond? And how are we to to engage in our culture? Because here's the danger. On one end of the spectrum, we can engage the culture so completely and so fully apart from scripture that all the world sees in some followers of Jesus are their political activism, whether it's left or right. On the other end of the spectrum are followers of Jesus or churches that don't engage the world at all and say, listen, we're just going to stick to the gospel only and and, um, that's all that matters and all we care about are seeing um, people come to faith in Jesus and all of that other stuff in the culture really doesn't matter. And what we want to do is avoid the extremes on both sides and come in with a viewpoint that says we are to engage the culture, but how are we to do that biblically? And how are we to do that with the gospel leading the way? So that is my heart for this entire series. And and today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hear from Paul as he addresses the church in Rome, and then I'm just going to pick out a couple of things in the culture and walk through how we can engage with them as an example of the many, many other things that are out there. There's no way we could go through the whole litany of cultural items um, that are out there that we'd love to talk about. But I just want to pick out three 
today, deal with them, and then kind of point us towards an attitude and a perspective that will lead us through the rest of the series, all right? So Romans chapter 12 is where we are uh, today. And, and let, me, let me do this. Before we even get into the, the text, let me explain about the culture of Rome. We talk about the culture of the United States. You saw a little piece of that in the video bumper there. Listen to, to the culture at Rome, and this is where, um, when we think of the early church, we often think of our culture as being just so uniquely uh, depraved that it can't go any further. That's not true. That's not true. Now, here's the interesting part. I will say this. I will say this. The further and further that we go along, and the further and further the decline that we see in many of, uh, many of our cultural institutions, the closer and closer, I believe, we are to the first century where the gospel can, th can flourish and thrive in a new, fresh way. But here's what's happening in Rome when Paul writes, just not long after Christ is off the scene. Rome was um, an incredible city, and it housed over... Um, over a million citizens. Now I use that word house because many of the citizens that were there in Rome at the time were um, slaves and they were immigrants. They were people from all the nations. Rome was a melting pot of, of, uh, of ethnic groups and so they would come, be slaves, they would work there. They would often house these slaves and they'd house these immigrants in these multi multi-story tenement buildings. They would cram them in there and, and you can imagine what living conditions were like in some of these places. Meanwhile, out in the suburbs, out in the burbs of Rome, right, there were these, um, these wealthy landowners and, and so there's this huge distinction between the rich and the poor. And out in the suburbs, you'd have these wealthy estates and these wealthy villas and part of the reason that these landowners could operate the way that they could is because they were granted favors from the government. Sound familiar to anybody? All right, we tracking? So um, this is what the context of, of Rome is like. As far as um, the culture, it was, it was morally polluted. It was morally polluted. There were no prohibitions on sexual activity at all. I mean, we, we, we look at our culture today and we think that... Um, that when it comes to, to sexual promiscuity, that, that we're, we're really, really in the ditch. Well, we don't have anything on Rome, folks. There were no prohibitions when it came to homosexuality, when it came to incest, when it came to adultery, when it came to fornication, when it came to um, wives and, and slaves and what, what could be done with them. I mean, th there, there's just no shackles holding people back sexually in Rome. And then add to that, there's this, this sense of freedom there in Rome where uh, entertainment, entertainment was pursued. And, and we, we know that the entertainment that they would pursue was at the cost of, of, of innocent lives. I mean, you, you've seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. You remember that movie? Well, there's just a sense of the, of the violence and a sense of the entertainment that people would, would, um, would receive from a total disregard of human life. And so here's the point. When Paul comes to the church at Rome, he's going to address them. And here's what's happened. Is some of the cultures begun to seep its way into the church. And Paul wants to remind them of how they are to respond to the culture around him. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us 
as well. So if you have a copy of the Word of God, Romans chapter 12. Welcome to those of you who are over in the worship center. I apologize for not welcoming, welcoming you earlier. We, uh, if you're one of our guests here, we're so glad that you're here in both rooms. We worship in two rooms at the same time. So there's a whole bunch of folks worshiping over in the other room. Romans chapter 12, if you have your place in the Word of God. If not, there's one up on the screen there to help you out. And let's begin in verse 9. And I want you to listen to what Paul writes to the church sit, sitting in this city that I've just described. And he says this, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14. Now listen to how the tone shifts to the outside. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, but repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath. Of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did you hear in that first paragraph what Paul is writing to the church? He, he's simply telling him this, that, listen, the world is watching, and um, the world wants to see how you respond to one another, so I exhort you, church, to love one another. I exhort you to let your love be genuine. I, I exhort you to outdo your love and affection for one another. I encourage you to keep serving the Lord with passion and with zeal. I encourage you to remain constant in prayer, to meet the needs of those around you, to show hospitality. So before he even gets to the outside, Paul says, listen, the world is, is watching you and it's, and it's looking at how you respond to one another to see what love is like because that is really what is at the heart of all of this that the world ultimately is seeking after love of some sort. So when they see your love, they'll respond to that. But if you don't, they'll respond to that as well. And so he talks to them internally, but then he comes to this phrase, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And, and here's the first thought that I want us to think about as we talk about engaging the culture. Number one, overcome evil with good. This thought of overcoming evil with good. It's bookended here in our two paragraphs. On the front end, abhor or detest 
what is evil on the back end as you are being persecuted and people are treating you in an evil way you don't respond w uh, to them you don't respond as they've responded to you instead instead you overcome the evil that they want to force upon you as the evil is bearing down on you as it's pulling you under as you feel like you're you're drowning in in this evil overcome it rise above it with good wow okay how do we do that then how do we engage the culture in that way next week we'll talk about what it what it means to vote what it means to come and, and, and to cast a vote and, and how we can support or how we can embrace or how we can endorse those things that God would have us in our conscience to do. And, and we'll, talk, we'll walk through that and talk through that together. But, but how do we, other than, than voting, which you should do, which you should do, how do we engage culture with good, with good? Well, the first step is understanding that evil can creep in. That the thinking of evil can seep into the body of Christ. That the, the actions that are demonstrated outside the body of Christ can come into the body of Christ. So when we go to engage the world, we look just like they do. There's no distinction. And Paul is very clear here. What is evil, you detest, you run, you abhor, you, you, you flee from it like the plague, and you run to what is good. And you hold on to that which is good. And this is how you're going to overcome the evil in the culture around you. So how do we do that? Well, let me hit just a couple of, couple of things in the culture that, that are on my heart and on my mind, come from, from the scriptures, I believe, and address the culture, and hopefully it will be a model for you on how we do this. Number one, number one, life in the image of God. Life that is stamped with the image of God. We have seen a culture that has seemingly forgotten what it means to value life. Now this can happen in a couple of ways, alright? First of all, it seems that we live in a culture, and we saw it this summer, where racial prejudice sometimes boils over and we in even in the church if we're not careful we can fall into a pattern of racial prejudice as us versus them and we can fall into a pattern of of, of drawing distinctions and and saying that all lives matter or black lives matter and we can walk into that racial discussion without understanding the biblical framework, the biblical foundation of combating prejudice, which is evil. Prejudice is evil. And it can seep into the body. And, and, and here's the foundation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, here's what he did. He created them in the image of God, it says. Male and female, he created them. And what it means to be stamped with the image of God is that he has created them with, mind, with a mind to think, with a will to act, with emotions, and the ability to communicate just like him. And so when he created man and woman, he created something that was so wonderfully put together. And not only that, not only that did he create man and woman, all races... All throughout history, he sent his son, 
Jesus in the form of a man to die for every single man and woman on the planet. So when we see those with black skin, we should not discriminate and say we are inferior or we are superior and they are inferior in any way. We are equal because we are equally designed with the image of God. When we see people with brown skin, we don't see them as inferior to us. We don't see them as only having certain capabilities to work a certain way or do a certain thing. And they don't speak our language. We don't draw distinct distinctions and say, we're Americans and you're not. So therefore you are inferior to us. We, through a gospel lens, says they are stamped with the image of Almighty God. And they are worthy of all dignity and respect. We don't see people with olive skin from the Middle East, coming over here. We don't see them as, as people. We should not fear those individuals, but we see them rather as designed by God and beautifully made in his sight, his son sent to die for them. And so we do away with the prejudice that can seep into the church. We detest prejudice. We cling to the good. And the good is this, that God has designed them beautifully. Christ has died for them. So therefore, my lens when it comes to race is through scripture and God's design and through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how we should view it. Take another example. How about the issue of, of life when it comes to unborn life? Now, this is one that come political season gets a lot of play. Let's just be honest. It's one near and dear to my heart. I used to work in Washington, D.C., for those of you who don't know, and I used to work in politics, and so this is one of those areas, one of those issues when it comes to preserving unborn life. This is one of those issues that was near and dear to my heart and to those I worked for. I firmly believe the scriptures are very, very clear that God has created and beautifully made all life. And to take away that innocent, defenseless little boy or little girl and to do away with them is evil. I believe that. I believe that. I think it's according to the scriptures. This is a hard truth in this day and age because the younger the generations, whether it's on issues like abortion or homosexuality or tra transgenderism or any of those issues, the further and further we go down into the generations, the more and more acceptable, the more and more accommodating, the more and more there's a sense of distance from these issues and not calling them what the scriptures call them. So we have to be clear on what it is. But here is the lens by which we need to view this issue. We don't simply need to say it is evil and therefore you who participate in that and therefore you who promote that, therefore you are unworthy of dignity and respect. Instead, here is the view we need to look through. That those women, and there are some of you who are seated here and over in the other room or might be listening to this, there are women who have had abortions. There are fathers whose babies have been aborted. And here is where we need to say, this is wrong because the scriptures say it was wrong. But there is a grace that comes through forgiveness and there is a grace that comes through redemption and through restoration and through confession. And there is healing. And the body of Christ should not be the one who stands on the street corner and says, this is evil, this is wrong, without also coming in with the grace of God saying, God loves you, Christ died for you, therefore there 
there is hope for you and we love you. That is a gospel lens. How about the issue of foster care and adoption? This is an issue. I, I, I tell you what, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of, of the group here called Mission 127, which has just poured their lives and banded together as a community. They meet on Wednesday nights and they band together and they give to one another. They share with one another for the purposes of seeing foster care and adoption move through. And what better response? Paul says, overcome evil with good. Do you know how we overcome evil with good? Here is what we do. We quietly work with those mothers and those fathers who have been impacted by abortion. But we come in and we offer the redeeming, restorative, healing love in the lives of those children who are in foster care or who need adoption. I can't think of anything greater over the past few years that has bolstered this issue of God has created all life than foster care and adoption. It's been a beautiful thing. It's been beautiful. This is how we overcome evil with good. We overcome prejudice by the way that we speak and we see and we love and we embrace all peoples. We overcome evil of abortion with good by the way we love those moms and we love those dads and, and we pour into those kids. But then there's a third one. There's a third one. And that is sexuality. Sexuality that has been designed for the good of families has been twisted and has been perverted from God's original design. God created sex and he gave sex as a gift to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it was perfect. This was before the fall. This is before sin. And God said, this is the way by which you will enjoy one another. This is the way by which you will bring other children for generations to come into the world. And this is the way by which you emotionally and physically and, and, and spiritually are one. It's an incredible gift designed by God for the good of men and for the good of women, for the glory of God. But instead, you, you know what's happened in our culture? I mean, the, the headlines this past Thursday or Friday, the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're going to hear this case where, where, where in Virginia, a, a, a young person who was born a female now identifies as a, as a male, wants to use... Uh, the male bathrooms in the public schools. You remember back in May, I addressed this right, right from this stage here when, when the president said that the Department of Education needs to send down rules and guidelines by which schools should, should open up their bathrooms for, for transgender kids. And you know, all of the, the cultural uh, tanglements that happened because of that. It's amazing where we are now. And I mean, we've kind of forgotten that, that it was last summer when the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was, was legal and, 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 and was a right that is afforded to all people. And we, we just keep moving down the line when it comes to, to sexuality in our culture. And, and at, one, at what point are we going to allow it to continue to seep into the church and not listen to Paul when he says, detest what is evil, but cling to what is good? Because it's ruining us. It's ruining our children. It's ruining our, our homes. It's ruining our families, our culture. I'm just not talking about issues where, where there's homosexuality, transgenderism, but I'm talking fornication. I'm talking incest. I'm talking pornography. There are all sorts of cultural issues where we abhor the twisted, beautiful gift that God has given men and women. And it leads to destruction. 
but we cling to what is good. We cling to God's design, and we don't abandon traditional biblical marriage, and we don't kind of cower, and we don't kind of hide and go, well, that's not popular anymore. No, we don't do that. But then here's what we do. We, 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 don't, we don't claim the high ground and say, oh, look at us. Because truth be told, the church isn't exactly doing a great job when it comes to marriage either. But we don't say, oh, look at us. We're, we're, we're still married. We, we, we have this, this high and, and moral ethic. No. What we do is, with hearts that are broken for those who are trapped in any kind of sexual addiction, any kind of sexual sin, any kind of sexual evil, for all of those individuals, we quietly love them. We quietly come to them and give them the truth of the scripture. And we say, this is God's design. And if you don't follow God's design, ultimately it's going to lead to your destruction. And I know that's not popular, but this is what the scriptures say. And we want you to also understand what the scriptures say, that destruction is not inevitable for those that turn to Christ, that those can have their hearts transformed and have their minds and have their bodies transformed and God can do it and God can heal and God can restore. We come to people and love them with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we hold marriage up. You, you know what? No wonder, and you saw this in the debate over the issue of same-sex marriage. No wonder the church doesn't have a leg to stand on when its marriages, many of its marriages are in shambles. You know what we can do? We can love our wives. We can love our husbands. We can, we, we, we can, we can do everything we can to show our children and to show our grandchildren and to show the generations to come that what God has designed is indeed beautiful and what God has designed is good and it's hard and we make mistakes and we fail and we're not perfect but nevertheless we can flourish and thrive under God's design with a biblical view of sexuality. This is what it means to overcome evil with good. I mean, these Romans who, who were here the, 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 these Romans who were part of, part of the, the early church here, they, these weren't powerful people. I mean, many of these folks, there, there might be a few sprinkled here and there, but these, these aren't powerful people. What Paul is saying is overcome evil with good by the way that you live and by the way that you love and by the way that you cling to what is good and you don't let the evil in. But then I think he says this in that second paragraph, and here's the second thought. Think, think, and walk Humbly, All right, this is a wonderful reminder to me as I go through this election season, as I go through a cultural season. Always think and act with great humility. With great humility. You can see it there in that second paragraph as he talks about blessing those who persecute you, living in harmony with one another. And, and then he says this, don't get on your high horse, don't be haughty, but but live and, and assemble and give your lives to those who are lowly. Don't take revenge. Leave revenge to the wrath of God, to the judgment of God, to the justice of God who will do what is right. Leave that to them. Instead, you bless. And what I think he's saying is this. Church at Rome, I think what he's saying here, church at Taylor's in this election season, in this cultural season, work to overcome evil with good, but then think and walk with great humility. 
says it right there. I love, I love this phrase. Never be wise in your own sight. Stand on the scriptures, but then never think of yourself as too wise. Never think of yourself as too high. Think and walk humbly. I love what Mark Twain said when he, when he defined a patriot. Here's how he defined what a patriot is. You ready? A patriot is one, it's the person who can holler the loudest without knowing what he is hollering about. Isn't that true? One who can holler the loudest without knowing what he's hollering about. Here, here's, what, here's what we do. We drop sides. Hillary's on this side. Trump's on this side. And, and the enemy's on the other side. Planned Parenthood's on this side. Pro-life is on this side. The enemy's on the other side. Those that espouse gay marriage, LBGT communities are on this side. We're on, the, on this side. All, all the racial issues, they're, they're, for, they're for the police. They're, they're not for the police. And we draw up sides. You know what? A biblical lens says we're going to take what the word of God teaches us. And we're going to walk low. And we're going to walk humbly. And we don't see people as worthy of our judgment and condemnation. God will do that. Instead, we see people as worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to get this in our minds. That ultimately, people are not our enemy. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's writing another church. Hey, your, your struggle is not against people. You're, you're, even though you're being persecuted, ultimately, I, I know they're, they're chopping your heads off. I know, I know they're putting you in prison. I, I know that you're suffering from that. But you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Think and walk humbly and understand that people aren't your ultimate enemy. The spiritual forces and sin that drags them away into destruction, that is the enemy. That is the enemy. All right, which brings us to our final point this morning is really simple. It says, the gospel is our hope and aim for all people. The gospel has to be our hope and our aim for all people. Let me read to you from 1 Timothy. Paul is writing this young pastor and he's trying to teach him uh, as he is pastoring and, and he says this, all right, we might see this again down the road in our series, but he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, all right, pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now here it is, verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is what can redeem a culture and transform a culture. 
The gospel is not only our hope, but it is our purpose. This is why we exist as a church, to make disciples with the gospel. And so Paul tells this young pastor, he says, listen, Timothy, as you pray for these kings and as you pray for those in authority over you, I want you to have in your mind that it is the gospel that we just described here that leads you to, to live the type of life that is godly, that is holy, that is dignified, it is peaceable, it overcomes evil with good. It engages the culture, it engages the world in which you live in, but it does so in a godly, dignified, humble way so that all men might see the hope of the gospel in you. And if we are doing our politics and if we are doing our cultural issues and they don't sense the grace and hope of the gospel, then we're doing our culture and we're doing our politics all wrong. And Timothy, and Paul says to Timothy, that all men may know, that all men may have this hope. And you might be here this, this morning, and I've used this word gospel a lot. I just read it to you. It's this beautiful picture that here is God, and here is man, and we're separated. And we're separated by our sin. But God has sent his son Jesus to earth to live as a man, a perfect life with us, so that when the time came, he would go to the cross and he would give his life entirely for your sin and my sin. He was perfect. So therefore, God's wrath, Romans chapter 12, that God's wrath that would be poured out on those who continue to walk in their own sin towards destruction, God's wrath is no longer poured out on the sinner, but on Christ. And so now, here's God and here's man. Christ comes. Now God and man can be together in him. And the sin and the rebellion that has now been transferred to Christ, we are free from that if we just follow him and open up our hearts to him and ask for forgiveness and mercy. This is how you can become a follower of Jesus. And this is the incredible news of the gospel. And it will change your mind and it will change your heart and it will change your life forever. Is this your story? And Paul reminds Timothy. And Paul reminds the Romans. He spends all of the entire letter outlining this incredible gospel. And he comes to them and says, overcome evil with good. Think humbly and walk humbly to those outside. Because you've been changed by the gospel. And it is the gospel that will change lives forever and ever and ever. So this is how we walk through this. This is how we walk through these issues. We walk with a desire to overcome evil with good. To walk humbly. Because people aren't ultimately the enemy. And we desire the gospel to be the point of our spear. As we continue to walk together. Will you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for these dear folks who have listened so attentively. Father, I, I know when you talk on issues like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism and race, Father, I pray that my words will be those words that are guarded and guided by you and I pray they would hit hearts not because they're, a, they're human words but come from your heart and from the scriptures 
And Lord, I pray that you would take this and use this and shape us. This is a shaping sermon, shaping our minds and our hearts towards what it means to engage the culture. But Lord, for those who are here, maybe they've heard the gospel for the very first time, I pray that they would hear the love of Christ in how we address these issues, but ultimately the love of Christ and what you have done in providing him for sinners. So Father, as we sing in both rooms, as we now sing the song of commitment, would you continue to speak as only you can to transform lives? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.